Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation brought to you by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was jointly hosted by Ushaw College, the Center for Catholic Studies, and the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was presented on the 12th of February, 2019, by Martin Stannard, Emeritus Professor of Modern English Literature at the University of Leicester. The lecture was given as part of the Ushaw Lecture Series, and is entitled Evelyn Waugh, Catholicism and America. Hollywood, Death, and the Religious Life. Well, thanks very much, Pat. I don't recognize myself at all. Um, <clears throat> it's, um, I was just telling her before that um, uh, I was in Italy with my partner, um, and I was about to write the section on the loved one. She was not really an Evelyn Moore fan. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and I said, you just listen to this. And so I read, I, my plan was I was going to read her the first page or so. I ended up reading her the entire book. <laughs> and she put up with it, too, and, and found it very funny. And I think that might have been a turning point. So the problem with, with trying to uh, give a lecture like this is uh, the problem of, of writing the whole of the second volume. Um, and that is, how do you deal with war's apparent uh, cruelty, rudeness, um, the general difficulties that he seemed to cause people all over the place wherever he went? <clears throat> and my argument, basically, is that when he went to America, although at first he was much like that, um, he changed. And what changed was the fact that he was interested in uh, developing an argument which defended American Catholicism as the savior of the world. So what we're dealing with here is the post-war world. So war's come out of, I'll talk about this, but he's come out of being a soldier. He's written Brideshead, which is a huge success. <clears throat> he's um, then um, got interested in in America, although not at first. So off we go. <clears throat> um, War once uh, remarked on hearing that a friend had undergone a successful operation for lung cancer. It is a typical triumph of modern science to find the only part of Randolph that is not malignant and to remove it. <laughs> a friend, of course, was Randolph Churchill. Sir Winston's son, with whom War had an erratic comradeship. The remark was typically War, savaging with paradox someone for whom he usually felt affection, hating the modern world. By 1947, the year of his first visit to America, he'd wounded most of his friends. Nancy Mitford entertained him in Paris, and he conscientiously insulted everyone. And so she asked him why he needed to be so cruel. You have no idea, he replied, how much nastier I would be if I were not a Catholic. 
Without supernatural aid, I would hardly be a human being. This much-quoted remark from Christopher Sykes's biography is often set alongside another one. Um, this, this is from Hilaire Belloc after a, a visit from war, um, who described war as possessed. War's American experience, I shall argue, shows quite another character. So, in January 1947, <clears throat> war was 43, a short, plumpish, irascible celebrity. And since his conversion in September 1930, he'd become a die-hard fundamentalist. In his social attitudes too, he was a conservative, out of step with his era, a defender of aristocratic uh, values in the age of the common man, as it became known. In 1937, uh, after his um, divorce, he had remarried into the West Country aristocracy, actually a relation of his first wife, uh, and Laura Herbert, who was the lucky woman, was a devout Catholic with a fine sense of social distinction. So from that moment, um, he never, as it were, looked forward. Um, democracy and the welfare state were to him the confidence tricks of humanism. In 1944, uh, when war had broken a leg, learning or trying to learn to parachute, the army had gratefully allowed him extended, extended leave, very glad to see the back of him really, during which he had written Brideshead Revisited. It had appeared in 1945 with the armistice and had transformed his career. <clears throat> in America, it was Book of the Month Club selection at a time when most of his countrymen were suffering the austerities of the aftermath, war became rich. And he had the Americans to thank for this, although he often didn't. Um, <clears throat> in 1947, which is where our story begins, he was traveling to Hollywood to negotiate the film rights on an additional $100,000 contract. It's quite a lot of money. After a few days in New York, <clears throat> War and Laura entrained on the luxurious 20th century, this wonderful sort of aluminium train. It's rather fittingly named for somebody like Evelyn War to be traveling towards Hollywood in, and headed for Chicago. His American agent had stockpiled $3,500 pocket money for them, 2,000 of which Laura, extraordinarily, who usually spent nothing on clothes, had already spent in the New York shops. <clears throat> uh, War had purchased champagne, brandy, and sherry to take west, assuming that nothing of reputable quality would be available in the desert. Most New Yorkers, he thought, were barbarians, but some, he had to admit, possessed a certain chic. The train was undeniably luxurious. Its cuisine was excellent. Uh, true, it was, quote from the diaries, all thin aluminium, and one hears coarse native laughter through the walls, unquote. But there was something appealing about the childlike seriousness of Americans, something healthy in their sense of temporary habitation. Hic non habemus manantem civitas. Here we have no abiding city. Death at the elbow, 
life as brief exile from felicity. These religious preconceptions had uh, channeled Bohr's skepticism since 1930. In the dining car pulling out of Chicago, he'd explained to the maitre d'hôtel that he was a foreigner and had received a curt but pleasing response. We're all foreigners here. <laughs> War like that man. Evelyn's brother, Alec, um, <clears throat> also a writer, had made New York his professional base after the war. And though, uh, through a chain of uh, distant connections, reported Evelyn's appearance at Los Angeles Station <clears throat> um, uh, to, to their mother. Evelyn's appearance at Los Angeles Station, he wrote, was fantastic. The sun was shining, tropical flowers were in bloom, all the young people were dressed in shorts and slacks and open shirts. And there was Evelyn in a stiff white collar and bowler hat, carrying a rolled umbrella. <clears throat> California was like nothing he'd ever seen. As he stared impatiently from the window of MGM's limousine, the only comparisons that sprang to mind were Egypt and Abyssinia, <clears throat> Cairo with a dash of Addis Ababa. He was equally surprised by the comfort of the Bel Air Hotel. Um, but fortunately, there was something to complain about. The suite had been booked, that had been booked for him was not available. An old man, a regular customer, had suffered a paralytic stroke and couldn't be moved. Each morning, War would appear in his bowler and demand access. Each morning, the flabby young manager apologetically refused. Your guest's health, War replied one day, is no concern of mine. And he stepped up the war of nerves. <clears throat> Even the hard-boiled film magnate who'd arranged the visit was shocked by this. Mr. War, he told Peter Quinnell, had gravely disappointed him. <clears throat> uh, this, of course, was precisely War's intention. On the train, he'd been warned that the magnates would invite him to an opulent party to try to flatter him into accepting low terms. Thus it was that in the Petronian luxury of Louis B. Mayer's house, he declaimed, how wise you Americans are to eschew all ostentation and lead such simple, wholesome lives. <clears throat> This really is delightful. Who'd even want to live in the main house when he could have this charming gatehouse instead? <clears throat> On all this from a smiling, cherubic face. I can tell you, someone reported, it was all rather unnerving. Now, we don't quite know how to deal with him, even on a business level. Well, business with Mr. War was clearly going to be difficult. He had taken one look at Hollywood studio life and decided that none of these savages was going to monkey with his magnum opus, as he called it, $100,000 or no $100,000. All saw Brighthead as a love story. None recognized the theological implications, which were, of course, the most important aspect of the book to war. But how to escape from the deal without repayment of expenses? Fortunately, the Hayes-Johnson dicta came to the rescue. As a form of moral sieve, 
their function was to eliminate impurity from moving pictures. You know, that was the kind of law that they introduced which insisted that in any bedroom scenes, uh, one of the two people should, must have one foot on the floor. It's that kind of nonsense. Um, <clears throat> so, when the bride's head script was condemned as likely to undermine the conception of Christian marriage by the Hayes-Johnson people, war was the excuse he needed refused changes. From this point, he instructed his MGM driver to take him not to the studio, but to the pet cemetery and to its elaborate counterpart for the dead rich, Forest Lawn. He was gripped. Anybody ever been to Forest Lawn? It is the most amazing place. <laughs> <laughs> and in the light of a quotation that's about to come up, bear in mind that the whole thing is full of fake pictures, fake statuary, fake everything you can think of. <clears throat> Nothing's, you know, kind of by the original artists, as it were. Everything's a copy. Very skillful copies. Um, so off he goes. He says, I'm entirely obsessed by Forest Lawn. Um, this is a letter to his agent, A.D. Peters, and planned a long, short story about it. I go there two or three times a week. I'm on easy terms with the chief embalmer. And next week, I'm to lunch with Dr. Hubert Eaton himself, who is indeed the chief embalmer and the person who wrote the book about the place. No, he wasn't the chief embalmer. Probably he was the founder. Uh, so, war goes on. It is an entirely original place. The only underlying thing in California that is not a copy of something else. <clears throat> MGM, MGM had supplied introductions. Hubert Eaton, the visionary founder <clears throat> and the author of all these dreadful sort of um, inscriptions, <clears throat> provided guided tours of the grounds and embalming rooms. Here was or loved ones propped up and painted. The place symbolized for him the paganism at the heart of the American dream. If Forest Lawn was California and California was America, America was the cemetery of the humanist fallacy. Made a big mistake, of course, in thinking that California might represent America, as the East Coast people quickly pointed out. So primed with artistic enthusiasm, he returned to England and wrote the loved one quickly. Its American reception surprised him. His agent had advised him against American publication. Both had expected ructions. In fact, nearly everyone admired it. And War had to think again about the barbarism of that powerful audience across the pond. The Hollywood visit shows War at his most difficult, snobbish, patronizing, vindictive, but an unaccustomed humility began to appear in his correspondence afterwards. He was growing ashamed of his neurotic outbursts, struggling to cultivate the virtue he chiefly lacked, compassion. And behind this spiritual struggle, lay a then obscure figure, <clears throat> a young American monk called Thomas Merton. The rights to his autobiography, Seven Story Mountain, had been offered to a friend of war's, Tom Burns, 
Burns, the publisher, of course now famously, of Burns and Oates, the Catholic publishers, <clears throat> had passed the book on to War for an opinion. But War, it seems, had read the American edition, was already in contact with Merton. War had suggested cuts. Merton was delighted. War was the writer he most admired. I need criticism, the young monk replied, the way a man dying of thirst needs water. And from these formal beginnings, a close friendship took root. War edited the British edition, elected silence. He cut about a third, so when he was talking about cuts, he was talking about serious cuts. Um, and he enjoyed doing the work, not simply as an exercise of professional skill, but as an act of homage. The more he cleaned up Merton's prose, the brighter shone the book's significance. War, with typical artistic modesty, only remarked in his foreword that this, quote, very remarkable autobiography, unquote, has been, quote, very slightly abridged, <coughs> unquote, refusing even to say by whom. It was not friendship with Merton. They only met once, as often in War's later life, the relationship was conducted mainly by post. War sent him books on prose style and discussed writing like a benevolent schoolmaster. Merton, bewildered with gratitude, was in literary matters a penitent to War's confessor. But their discussions quickly broadened to include the spiritual life. And here, roles were reversed. <clears throat> War saw his own spiritual condition as parlous, but there was at least something he could do to assist the faith, something penitential. Quote, it seems to be likely, he wrote to Claire Booth Luce, that American Catholicism may help to save the world. And he proposed a lengthy article on the subject for Life magazine, which of course her husband owned. <clears throat> The Lucy's response was uh, enthusiastic. I, I think at some stage earlier, they'd attempted to arrange something with Bohr and it had all ended in tears. Um, so they were very pleased that he was coming to them and saying, hey, why don't I do this for you? Um, contract was arranged. War had already planned a lecture tour in January 1949 and Life agreed to fund a preliminary tour of these centers so that War could discuss American Catholicism with the bishops and professors. And so it was that in November 1948, he set off on his second trip to the States <clears throat> and his only one without Laura. The contract was arranged so as to be almost entirely discountable as expenses. So not much money changed hands, but a great deal of value, as it were. <clears throat> um, pietas and tax uh, avoidance thus magnificently combined, War began the oddest quest of his life. Less than a year after completing the loved one, he was returning to the country his book had savaged in search of spiritual enlightenment. Well, he didn't spare himself. New York, Boston, Baltimore, Kentucky to visit Merton, uh, New Orleans by train and home exhausted at the end of December. 
in benign mood, probably in New York, he broke a golden rule and then allowed an interview. <clears throat> the next day, the article appeared entitled, War Doesn't Like the US But Tolerates Its Dollars. And it read as follows. Evelyn Waugh told the British press today that it is almost impossible for a man to lead a good life in the United States, but admitted that he was going back next month for a series of lectures at $550 apiece. <clears throat> Quote, they heat their rooms to 75 degrees, then nail down the windows so that you suffocate. Their radios are on all day and they talk too much. Unquote. <clears throat> Mr. War said he was relieved to be back in England because he was afraid that should he die in the United States, the Morticians Union of America would refuse to bury him because, because of the loved one. <laughs> well, this was precisely the impression that the report appeared in the New York Herald Tribune as well as uh, back in the UK, that War did not wish to create. And so furious was he with this misrepresentation that he published, uh, if not an apology, at least an explanation. It so happens that I like visiting America, love and respect countless Americans, and knowing their particular sensitiveness, take pains not to make criticisms of them that I should freely make of any other nation, particularly my own. He should, he knew, have known better than to have opened his mouth, but somewhere between the beatific vision and the flashpots, he was caught with his dry soul hungering for contrition to ease the burden of his faith. All that remained to him was a form of cenobitic life, the retreat to his country house, the stocking of his library and garden, Laura and the farm that she ran, the embellishment of the place, the education of his children, the construction of a huge, grim and solitary jest from what was left of his life and the hope that death would not be too long delayed. War was only 45 in December 1948, but he was a very old man. He wanted to die. Contrition, compassion, humility, these things he prayed for but resisting vanity was difficult during the lecture tour which followed. Warren Laura docked at New York, in New York, at the end of January 1949, to be greeted by a firestorm of publicity. Uh, his uh, little fiction, Scott King's Modern Europe, and uh, a compilation, Work Suspended and Other Stories, were about to be published. Catholic America was still humming with controversial debate about Graham Greene's The Heart of the Matter, a work War was to address directly in his talks. His subject was three vital writers, Chesterton, Knox, and Greene. The USA, War said in his advertising material, is assuming leadership of the West, which historically was formed by Christianity, predominantly Catholic Christianity. The West is incomprehensible unless one understands the church, in capital letters, <clears throat> which is identical everywhere, a single supernatural body. Great diversity, however, exists in this essential 
uniformity. So the object was to explain how each of the three writers, quote, so enormously different, um, uh, are all in complete accord in the essentials of philosophy, close unquote. Coming from um, almost anyone else, this might have seemed a pretty dreary diet, um, but coming from the celebrated author of Brighthead and The Loved One, close friend of Graham Greene, it was a showstopper. Packed houses greeted him everywhere and he didn't disappoint them. Was first engagement uh, was, uh, well, first two engagements were at the Waldorf Astoria and New York Town Hall, so no, not exactly modest. <coughs> uh, and um, Robert Kraft, the friend of Stravinsky and conductor and writer, was at the latter. It was, he recorded, the coolest performance of its sort that I have ever seen, even though he disparages it. Several days later, Kraft had tried to discuss the lecture over dinner, having engineered a meeting between the great English novelist and the great Russian composer. Stravinsky was in town. Kraft invited the wars to his hotel. They arrived spectacular in evening dress. Mrs. War, Kraft noted, fair and lovely. Mr. War, pudgy, ruddy, smooth-skinned, rather ramrod and poker-faced. War was awkward and defensive, eyeing up the composer of the Rite of Spring with undisguised suspicion. Kraft made the introductions and maneuvered uneasily between the two couples. When he tried to draw war on the lecture, conversation was quickly deflected. It was a block and a half to the restaurant on a freezing night. War stumped along, glum and coatless. His spirit seemed marginally to rise with the discovery of a funeral parlour, but quickly dropped again on entering the restaurant called Maria's, <clears throat> dark and crowded, no one else, of course, in evening dress. <clears throat> Kraft feared the worst and soon discovered how quickly wine and good Italian food could warm War's heart. He began to act gallantly with Mrs. Stravinsky and, turning the conversation to the church, was delighted by the composer's response. Here, Kraft noted, this surprised me about Stravinsky, actually, uh, Stravinsky shone, showing himself to be at least as ultramontanist as Mr. W, at least as well-read in Chesterton and Pegui, and at least as prone to believe in the miraculous emulsification of St. Januarius's blood. <clears throat> Thus encouraged that Stravinsky's admitted to having read and admired War's complete works. Another palpable hit and another war began to emerge, as magnanimous in uh, Kraft's words and amusing as the old one was unbending and precise. Ultimately, the evening was triumphantly convivial. There was only one further hiatus, however. Mrs. Stravinsky invited the wars to the forthcoming premiere of her husband's mass. <clears throat> Quite an honor, really. <clears throat> no, no, War said sharply. 
can't be done. Tickets for return passage already booked. Unless they press the point, all music is positively painful to me. <laughs> Imagine saying that to Stravinsky. <laughs> it was the same everywhere war went in America. A chain of conflicting anecdotes followed him from Baltimore to New Orleans. He was frank and convivial. He was dismissive and discourteous. He was the prophet of doom and the celebrant of faith. Certainly the Americans didn't know what to make of him. And when on one occasion he crossed the border to speak in Windsor, Ontario, the Canadians were equally baffled. At Windsor, leaving Laura in an expensive hotel, he boarded for most of his visit with the Brazilians at Assumption College. Quote, uh, from a witness, <clears throat> he did not mix with the students. This is Michael Power, quite a good writer, actually. Um, uh, so Michael Power wrote this to me in a letter. Didn't mix with the students. Um, didn't even bother to talk to any of them. He was this distant figure who sat with the priests at their own table in the refectory. All liked to go for a, a ride every afternoon. This proved tricky. The Brazilians had only one community car which was booked with great regularity. To make matters worse, Father Murphy didn't know how to drive. This meant that he had to pull a student out of class, or worse, a confrere. They would go out into the countryside and drive through all the sleepy towns and hamlets. When they motored down the main street of La Salle, War commented, and that's La Salle. They said the same thing for every place they saw. <laughs> it reminds me of, um, I went to Philadelphia once, you know that one? <laughs> it was closed. <laughs> Moving on to Chicago, New Orleans, and via several stops back to Milwaukee, War found it increasingly difficult to disguise his boredom with the Midwest and in an effort to discover something amusing, had written ahead to John Pick, who was quite a distinguished uh, professor of English at Marquette University. Could he arrange the war to meet some Indians? <laughs> Preferably on a reservation. <coughs> Unfortunately, the reservations were hundreds of miles away. The best Pick could offer was waxwork figures in the public museum. <clears throat> Wholly unsatisfactory. War wanted them alive. <laughs> After I met him, Pick wrote to me, and, and Mrs. War at the train, I had to take them to see the sights of Milwaukee. <laughs> but instead, he paid attention to the conversation of two of my students in the front seat of the car. One was telling the other that his family were vacationing in Florida, and had sent him a small alligator. War asked, do you feed it shells to harden its skin? Rather fond of it, aren't you? Do you miss it when you're at classes? Where do you keep it? The student said, well, in my room, of course. Why at Oxford, War replied, we would have had to keep it in a kennel. War was a master of embarrassment. Um, forewarned, Professor Pick had made scrupulous arrangements for the dinner party. 
The silver was polished, the wine was chilled, the candles were lit. All went well, he said, till towards the end of the meal, he whispered audibly to Laura across the table, making queer gestures with wiggling his fingers. She tried to ignore him and converse more and more audibly with her dinner partner. <clears throat> War repeated, repeated again. Finally, Laura saw, Laura saw what his predicament was and said, Evelyn, to the kitchen tap, my dear, to the kitchen tap. I had thought of every detail except the finger bowls. Apparently, the only source of fascination for war was Catholic gadgetry. The commercialization of pietism, such as devices for counting rosary beads. <laughs> Another anecdote from the Springfield Town Diocese shop, he wrote to Merton, who was a man not without a sense of humor. <clears throat> a traveler came in with a new type of plastic crucifix and said, the great advantage is that uh, it is so strong that you can throw it on the floor and stamp on it. <laughs> what the public couldn't see, however, was what he would never allow them to see, uh, which was the sincere missionary purpose of his tour. His mind was entirely concentrated on forming an impression of Catholic America. He wasn't tracking round glamorous institutions, but often small, independent Catholic universities, and some from the for the second time. He went out of his way to visit the writer J.F. Powers in St. Paul. On his return to New York, Wall gave another lecture. Everywhere, he made himself available to the press, which is practically <laughs> unbelievable, if you know anything about Evelyn Wall. The whole business was purgatorial to him, and particularly so because the more he saw, the more presumptuous his project appeared. No coherent history of Catholicism in America existed, and he had impetuously undertaken to cover this massive subject in a magazine article. It was a depressing prospect. He came and went, wrote Joe Deaver after the finger bowls incident, infuriating the self-conscious and the jingoistic, amusing and nettling the discerning. He came in archness, bristles, and with an inevitable sweetness that could disarm the cautious, winning them to his standards. Excuse me. So we'll return to England profoundly depressed by the prospect of life as it were, both in the sense of the magazine and in the sense of the remainder of his existence. I am in deep misanthropy, he wrote. I can't bear anyone else being alive at all. <laughs> and when a man goes past the window with a barrow or a child shuts a door upstairs, I fall into an extremity of rage. Barrow and man belong to Midland Gardens. War was, as he put it, having his grounds made much uglier at terrible expense. <clears throat> Everything about these embellishments was a tease, a puzzle, something to intrigue and entertain, divert the eye, structure the landscape. They were the logical extension of those rich ambiguities inside the house. 
the Victorian paintings of family lives and embarrassing questions, all of a piece as glimpses of lost civilizations. Yet each self-mocking and mocking its owner, each a memento mori. Another American visitor noticed half a dozen or so spikes along the top of a colonnade, colonnade of a newly constructed folly. Do you know what I plan to put up there? Boar asked him. No. Skulls. <laughs> I've already inserted advertisements in Country Life and the tablet. Boar's <clears throat> attitude to Americans remains confused. To Nancy Mitford, he confessed a pantomime loathing. Americans are louts. American, Catholic Americans are just a little better than Panglossist Americans. A month later, he wrote to Thomas Merton in more sober mood. I am struggling with the life article, feeling daily that it is an intolerably presumptuous undertaking. Two chastening experiences intervened between these letters, another Easter retreat at Downside and a visit to Paris. The first had reminded him painfully of his spiritual inadequacies, the second of his hatred of Metroland. He belonged, it seemed, to neither world. The 6,000 words of the American epoch in the Catholic Church, the Life article, took him the best part of three months to complete, astonishingly slow by his normal standards. And in the end, he thought it a failure, drearily pedagogic, just the sort of things the, the Americans would love. And they did. When the article appeared in September, it was met with huge success and revealed a depth of humble piety in war, which few Americans suspected. He had been widely reported as hating their country. Here, he was seen springing to his defense. The general argument, the collapse of European culture beneath an onslaught of rationalism, the rise of the USA as a world leader opposed to the communist threat, had enormous personal significance to war. To the skeptical reader, it might, seem, might have seemed uh, you know, rampant special pleading, but it appears to have been an accurate register of war's feelings. <clears throat> and it, I think, importantly, represents a massive shift in his views on the relationship between civilization and faith. Why do I say that? Well, because during the 30s, in a very famous piece he wrote um, on his conversion for the Daily Express, um, uh, he, he makes an argument for having become a Catholic, which is essentially based on the idea that um, the that what, what is most valuable to us is Western civilization. And that Western civilization would not have existed without the Catholic faith. And it comes quite close to justifying <coughs> um, his faith on the grounds that it produced a, a civilization. Um, and 
attached to that idea is the idea that the people who appreciate this kind of civilization are somehow or other more valuable than the people who don't. So it's not very firmly directed towards sympathy with the working class, for example. So in the 30s, his defensive tradition had been based on the reciprocal relationship he saw between European culture and Roman Catholicism. The one produced the other, and his argument comes awkwardly close to seeing civilization as the justification of his faith. Like T.S. Eliot, Moore had developed aesthetic predilections which were unrepentantly elitist. And a schizophrenic divide had appeared in his spiritual life. Christianity teaches humility, sympathy, but little children coming unto war had invariably suffered. Shortly after finishing the article, Moore read Merton's The Seeds of Contemplation and wrote to him about it. This is where it starts getting personal. <clears throat> um, it is most kind and should do much for Catholics and heathen alike. I am greatly impressed by your assurance. You write as if you had been a director of souls for a lifetime, except perhaps that an experienced director would not press the need for contemplation on all so eagerly. Is it not rather a question of rate of growth? Of course, the contemplative's ideal is what we, uh, what we must all come to before we reach heaven. And of course, if one can, it is convenient to stop wasting time and get through as much as possible purgation here. But don't you think that most souls are of slow growth? Is it not the most precocious child whom the parent loves most? Is there no, not a slight hint of bustle and salesmanship with which you want to scoop us all up into a higher grade than we are fit for? So this is deeply personal. He might have been saying I rather than we here. So it can be little doubt that War is referring to himself here. A soul of painfully slow growth, a prodigal son. <clears throat> his precocity was the product of his natural um, acuity. Um, and the impatience bred by that intelligence was deeply ingrained. It was incurable, really, the necessary attack on boredom. War may not have been possessed, but he was a tormented man. <clears throat> he hurt people, and somehow he couldn't stop himself from doing it. It's, uh, it was, I suppose, the, the power to hurt that had made him into a writer, made him into a satirist, <clears throat> um, to get that those hot wires under the fingernails. So that uh, you know, it's that. It's, that power to hurt. Um, but it was also that power that exerted a kind of demonic fascination over his friends. In this way, he'd chosen his friends, testing their resilience. And a form of their love for him uh, became the craving to be one of those he would not injure. 
sadly, by the time he got to the end of his life, there was almost nobody left. But um, <clears throat> So people like poor Cyril Connolly had a lifetime of torment at war's hands. Of late, however, his judgment of the gap between tease and injury had become erratic, and this distressed him. He believed in the power of evil. Like St. Augustine, he wished to be made good, but not yet. Well, <clears throat> if he could not be good and was constitutionally incapable of being careful, he could at least use his literary power in the service of the church. And where his profession was concerned, the battle against pride was, was won. He was an immensely modest artist. <clears throat> the American epoch is penitential in its austerity, affirming his belief that, quote, the incarnation restored order, unquote. Here, jokes are thin on the ground. War conscientiously foregrounds the whole range of his prejudices against the USA, only to demolish them as ignorance. Some Catholic readers, he suggests, might feel antagonistic to America. Uh, some British Catholic readers, I suppose. <clears throat> his constitution enshrines the division between church and state. Its historical tradition is anti-Catholic. Its society can be seen to manifest what he called a psychopathic antagonism to paternity, unquote. All this, however, war dismisses. <clears throat> the church was universally in a minority in America, constantly threatened by enemies inside and outside her body. What mattered was that, quote, Catholics are the largest religious body in the United States, the richest and in certain ways, the most, lively, the most lively branch of the Catholic Church in the world, firmly grounded in a neutral, secular state, unquote. One of the more moving sights of his tour, he says, has been in New Orleans, Ash Wednesday, the Roosevelt Hotel, packed with tourists oblivious of the significance of Lent, quote, but across the way, the Jesuit church was teeming with life all day long. A continuous, dense crowd of all colours and conditions moving up to the altar rails and returning with their foreheads signed with ash. The old, and the old grim message was being repeated over each penitent. Dust thou out, and unto dust thou shalt return. One grows parched for that straight style of speech in the desert of modern euphemisms. The phrase, all colours and conditions, I think, is significant here. In order to make his American argument coherent, War had to abandon the hierarchical principle on which so much of his thinking had been based. Where aesthetics and the authority structures of the church and state were concerned, the principle could be maintained. But what was examining here the root of his irrational prejudice against the common man, capital C, capital M, that the poor and ill-educated were repulsive to him. He does not overcome it, but he does at least confront it. In America, most Catholics were the descendants of slaves or of impoverished immigrants from the old world. Many were still poor 
their faith was associated in the popular mind with a redundant heritage. Quote, with the smell of garlic and olive oil and grandfather muttering over the foreign language newspaper, unquote. Europeans' war-borns should be cautious of sneering. He praises, quote, the heroic fidelity of the Negro Catholics, unquote, and defends humble piety. Quote, without help from the state, the poor have covered their land with schools, colleges, and universities, boldly asserting the principle that nothing less than an entire Christian education is necessary to produce Christians. For the faith is not a mere matter of learning a few prayers and pious stories in the home. It is a complete culture, infusing all human knowledge, unquote. In the context of the church, and there was for war no other context, he had learnt a form of humility. No humanist argument could convince him of the merits of egalitarianism, but he had to accept that in the eyes of God, all men were equal. Quote, a youth who is inarticulate in conversation may well be eloquent in prayer. It would be intolerable impertinence to attempt to judge. God alone knows his own. Unquote. War's role here as the celebrated author of the glossy, in the Glossy magazine is consistently debunked in favour of those contemplatives whose life of prayer attaches them to a higher reality. In the present phase of humanist competitive materialism, he suggests these solitary figures are the powerhouse of faith. Quote, the church and the world need monks and nuns more than they need writers. These merely decorate. The church can get along very well without them, unquote. Nothing could be further from the implicit connection between aesthetic taste and faith which permeates Brighthead. And in this chastened mood, he returned eagerly to work on what he thought his masterpiece, a novel which he had already begun uh, five years before, The Quest of the Empress Dowager, which you may not have heard of, but it's the novel that became Helena. Eighteen months later, the novel was complete, and the birth of his sixth and last child, Septimus, on the 8th of July, 1950, marked a milestone in war's life. <clears throat> Beyond that, the final fragile connection with the world of his youth broke. Even his faith had changed in character, hardening, contracting to the dry kernel of dogma, which alone he believed, kept him sane. Looking back over his 47th year, he felt that the latent enthusiasm which had fueled a lifetime's jokes was all but exhausted. Quote, you still have the delicious, oh, this is to Nancy Medford, you still have the delicious gift of seeing people as funny, which I lost somewhere in the highlands of Scotland, circa 1943. In 1943, he was training as a soldier and he learnt his last lessons in betrayal. In 1950, 
the opening of a new decade, represented to him the end of an era rather than the beginning of one, the point at which he seems to have moved from the boyish to the senescent, omitting middle age altogether. With his last child, a line was drawn, and it is fitting that he should have crossed it with his final visit to America and the publication of Helena. I originally planned the trip, he told Nancy, as a stimulant for Laura after childbirth, but it is now I who need it the more. It is the most wonderful health resort in the world. I look to it to revivify me. In fact, at the moment, I am like a patient lying comatose, waiting for the doctor to come round with the needle. The drug worked. Moore and Laura arrived at the Plaza Hotel in September 1950 to the jubilant greetings of mink-coated Catholics and a fanfare from the press. Eighteen days of lectureless luxury restored him to sustained high spirits, possibly for the last time in his life. Wherever he went, the conversation bubbled with fantasy, expense seemed limitless, and he bathed in adulation. Helena, just released, was going well. The climax of the trip was uh, a party at the plaza to celebrate the master's birthday. Anne Fremantle was dazzled. What a wonderful party, she wrote to him. I felt as though I was swallowing three canaries. It was almost gala and glorious. You touched these shores and presto, life is a party. And we all dance as though at the Waterloo Eve ball. One guest, however, was puzzled by his invitation, Lewis Alconclos, the lawyer and writer. <clears throat> uh, he'd only met War briefly the year before. I didn't know him at all. The mystery was solved after War's return. Jack Pierpoint, his publisher, recommended Alconclos's writing. And after reading his The Injustice Collectors, collectors uh, published in 1950, during the voyage home, War wrote a very fulsome letter of praise to him. Um, this is a totally unknown writer at the time, but it became a very senior American writer. <clears throat> now, that's a tiny anecdote, but it's a significant one, I think, because on the American literary market, Ward's stock was high, not only for his own work, but for his unexpected support of American letters. J.F. Power, Merton, Earl Stanley Gardner, who he really rated, extraordinary, and Hemingway had all been strongly defended by Evelyn Waugh against the English critics. Even Faulkner had come in on Waugh's side against the detractors of Across the River and Into the Trees. Now Alkincloss was added to the list. It was all good publicity to support War's serious interest in North American culture, and his readers there responded warmly to their eccentric knight errand. Helena was War's favorite of his own books, and more than the British, the North Americans appreciated this story of the central spiritual quest of Christianity the discovery of the true cross. War left New York triumphant. Helena had entered the bestseller list and his apostolic mission was complete. He never returned, but he never reneged on his belief that America would act as the focus of Catholic Christendom during the dark years that lay ahead. <clears throat> 
The glitter and pace of New York, however, were no longer for him. Updike, uh, sorry, <laughs> Updike, Freudian slip there. Unlike his, <laughs> his, his brother or Nancy Mitford or Graham Greene, he couldn't live as an expatriate. And he returned, an old man of 47, to defend the faith on the European front. I have felt so feeble in recent weeks, he wrote to Nancy two months later, that at last I called in a doctor who took my blood pressure and pronounced it the lowest ever recorded. <laughs> in fact, the pressure of a six-month fetus. <laughs> in an access of sudden hope, I said, does this mean that I shall die quite soon? No, said the doctor. It means that you will live absolutely forever in deeper and deeper melancholy. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> Thank you.